Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. His sermon is entitled, The Commander of the Lord's Army. Well, good afternoon, everyone, as it always is, uh, all of you that decided to brave this interesting weather that we are scheduled to have today. Uh, appreciate it, Ron, for introducing the title of this message today. Just kind of get into it. As he said, and as you see up there on the screen, the title today is The Commander of the Lord's Army. And we're going to be looking at Joshua, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 15 today. But just to introduce this subject, uh, many of you have probably read the uh, background story of what we're going to be getting into today. And I will admit that I have absolutely no military experience whatsoever. Uh, I don't have any experience, obviously, in the armed forces. I don't have any experiences uh, in, in such a thing. I've studied, uh, like many of us. I'm a, great, I'm a student to history. I'm a student to uh, the great military battles that have taken place uh, all throughout time, throughout world history, and of course throughout our own nation's history. And it's interesting because as I want to introduce this subject today, I want us to just kind of think about what do we think about when we think about the words commander or army. We, we typically think of military terms. We typically think of battles. And maybe you think of some of your favorite battles of history. Maybe it's a biblical battle because we know that the Bible, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, much of it, in some ways is a book of battles, it's a book of Israel going up against different enemies in uh, military incidents. We also can think of, of course, of American history. We think of maybe the Revolutionary War and some of the absolute miraculous events that took place that allowed the revolutionaries, you know, the founders of this country, George Washington, of going up through George Washington and the circumstances that some of them battles and some of those situations and just the absolute against all odds were able to overcome the English forces. And it makes me think about the Bible and about the story that God has presented us with because in a lot of ways this book that we are looking at, that we are holding, these 66 books that we call the Bible, is a story about defeating odds, defeating odds. The context that we're going to look at, as I mentioned, is Joshua, the fifth chapter. And we're going to pick it up and look at this in just a minute. But I want us to just maybe go a little further and think about that idea of battle, that idea of defeating odds. Now, some of us might have some military experience. Maybe, I think, I know off the top of my head, we have a few in here that have been in the military. Maybe they fought in in, in battle, actually. Maybe they have not. Maybe they were in the military during peacetime. But despite maybe all of us, or most of us, not being involved in any kind of military service or any kind of real-time battles, physical uh, battles, we all experience spiritual battles. We all experience spiritual situations that are like being involved in our own little personal battles. Let's think about it. It's not just military. Think about just real quick the American experience 
you know, the battles of this country physically, but also the battles that have taken place socially. Think about that. Think about the, the monumental things that have taken place. And, of course, the beginning of this country's history and all the different things that were involved and, and the, the, the gross, unfortunate situation of things such as slavery and how that was overcome. All the way up through even to the 1960s, we see people like Martin Luther King Jr. and the situation against all odds, being able to, in the, fierce, or in the face of so much opposition, be able to stand up and fight for a cause. Think about that. Think about the battles that men of this country and women of this country have went through. Not just physical battles, but in much, in, a, in like ways, spiritual battles. And of course, we know that we have some of the greatest examples that come from our actual Bible. The situation of Jesus Christ himself. And the odds of him being able to take upon the sin of the entire world upon himself. And in some ways, it's interesting because we say it's, it's a book about defeating odds, but in a way, there was really no challenge. In physical terms, in human terms, yes, it is very miraculous that these things take place. It is very miraculous that things result in the way they did, such as we see sometimes in our own American history and the different battles that were taking place in the Revolutionary War or the social things that were uh, taking place in this country's history. And then looking at the Bible, some of the miraculous things that took place. Of course, on a human level, these were miraculous because they were supernatural. But in God's realm, they were ordinary. And what I mean by that is, is there was never really any challenge because God has no real challenger. And we are going to look at a story that kind of brings some of this out. So I have two things I want to do today. First, I want to look at Joshua, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 15 specifically. And I want to look at the context of what's going on in this particular occasion and look at some of the background. Then I want us to look at some principles. This is much like a devotional today trying to maybe glean some principles from this story, many of which I have overlooked, even though I have read several times this story in this passage. So I'm just going to pick it up by just kind of describing the context of Joshua, the fifth chapter. Many of us have read the book of Joshua. It's the book of conquest. It's the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. We see the ancient Israelites for so many years, they've been brought out of Egypt They've been wandering in this wilderness, and now the time has finally come for them to take that promise in which God had given them, that promised land. And we see in the context of this specific chapter, right before this happened, we see that the baton of leadership had been passed from Moses to Joshua, Israel's new leader, Israel's new Moses. And we also see that in this, God is basically telling them, I have basically removed the reproach of Egypt from you. Specifically in Joshua, the fifth chapter, this happens right after we see the ancient Israelites, and specifically Joshua, send spies to Jericho to scope out how Jer what Jericho was like, what it, what it looked like. What it, was it ready to be taken yet? And the spies come back and give a good report. And Joshua, the fifth chapter, we have an interesting situation because what we have is, is we have 
after the miraculous passing over the Jordan River, where the priests with the, the Ark of the Covenant stand in the middle of the river and the rivers basically stop and they're able to walk over, we have some interesting things that take place. First of which, we see that the ancient Israelites become circumcised. And we're thinking, circumcised? Haven't What's going on here? Well, apparently, the Israelites had not been circumcised. The second generation, the ones that came after those ones that came after Egypt, they had not been circumcised, and the Passover was coming up. And so we see in the context of Joshua, the fifth chapter, that the Israelites become circumcised, and they also keep the feast of the Passover. And they camp out in a place known as Gilgal, which is approximately somewhere around two miles north of the city of Jericho which is the first focus of Israel's conquest into the land of Canaan, into the land of promise. And so let's just read Joshua, the fifth chapter. This is after they're circumcised. They keep the, the Passover, and God tells Joshua that I've removed the reproach of Egypt from you. Now begins a new era. And that new era is the beginning of the promises in which I have told you and your forefathers about delivering this land flowing with milk and honey that I promised to your forefather Abraham, I am going to deliver it to you to now. Right before this Jericho conquest, though, in verse 13 of Joshua 5, we read this, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, this is the man speaking, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell his, fell his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And so the first thing that we have to look at is we have to just look at the encounter. As was mentioned, previously to this, we have the camp of Gilgal. The camp of Gilgal is where Israel was located, and they were getting ready to besiege the city of Jericho. But right here is an interesting little spot, an interesting little twist that I had never uh, noticed before really studying this. And it tells us that Joshua was right here beside Jericho. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on here. There is some possible indications that Joshua maybe was at Jericho or nearby, possibly by himself without the army, scoping the city out. We don't know. Maybe it was early in the morning. Maybe, if think about Joshua's circumstance. He's this new leader. He's just taken... I mean, he's just taken this baton from Moses, and now he's the leader of Israel, and now he's responsible for leading Israel into the promised land. All the things that they always realized, or they always had uh, uh, learned about and the promises that had been given to them. And so possibly, let's just think about this from Joshua's perspective. We don't know if Joshua was present with his army right behind him. It's only a two-mile march from Gilgal to Jericho. It could have been an early morning thing where he just wanted to scope out the city for himself, maybe to think about, how am I going to do this? Jericho, the most fortified city in all of Canaan. We 
these Israelites, we have no home yet. We've been wandering this wilderness. We don't have things. I mean, think about it. He might have been planning a strategy. How is this going to be possible? How are we going to do this? What's the city like? What does it look like? Where are some possible vulnerabilities of Jericho? Think about the lack of experience of Israel. Yes, they've had experience with some small battles in the wilderness and things of that nature. But nothing like this. A monumental task. And if they were going to win, it was going to be a situation where they were going to have to beat the odds. Think about the equipment barrier. Think about what it takes in the ancient world whenever you go up against a city that's fortified with huge walls. Usually, you have things like battering rams. You have other things like possibly catapults, moving ladders. Israel, most likely, for all historians writing, has, has none of these things. Has none of the contemporary pieces of equipment necessary to be able to do such a task. All they most likely had at their disposal were things such as swords, arrows, slings, and maybe spears. Something that hardly would be able to breach a great wall such as was there at Jericho. And so he has this encounter with this man. And he asks this man a question. This man, sword drawn, in an offensive position, he asks him this question, are you for us or our enemy? Are you for us or our enemy? Interesting question. The response is interesting, and we'll get into that in just a little while, because the response tells us two things. It tells us who this person was, but it also tells us a little bit about maybe some principles that we can glean from it. The response to Joshua's questions is no. But I am the commander of the Lord's army, and I am here. That's what we learn from Joshua's response, or from the man's response. And through the response of Joshua himself to the answer to Joshua's question, we find out that this man isn't just some ordinary man. Joshua, at learning of the identity of this man, fell down and bowed and was even told eventually to remove his sandals as the presence of this maid, the ground, was holy. Think about that. What does that ring a bell of? Moses. The other situation that we see in the scriptures of something such as this and, and such a way happening is in Exodus, the third chapter. When Moses encounters what the famous burning bush, right? If you were to read Exodus the third chapter, and I'm sorry, Brian, I didn't give him all of my passages, but Exodus 3, verse 1, reads like this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. So what we have here is this interesting situation. At first, we are presented with two different things. In Joshua, we're presented with this random man that identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. And the response of Joshua is to fall down and bow and to be told that the ground in which Joshua is standing upon is holy ground. There's other passages like this, like Exodus. There's other ones as well. 
Because in Exodus, the same type of thing is happening. This is not referred to as the commander of the Lord's army, but rather what we see is, is a description or a presentation or an introduction of one thing. But as we read the story, we learn that it's much more than just an angel or some angel of the Lord, but rather the angel of the Lord. And the word angel, malach, in Hebrew is messenger. And the most striking thing about both of these situations, among many others, is that what's introduced as an angel lord, the commander, now is talking as if they are God themselves. They're not just some mere man, commander, some mere angel, but rather they're much, much more. Now typically, we see one particular example of this happening to an angel, albeit being in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19.10, where John falls down to an angel and begins to worship. And what does the angel do? Don't do that. I'm a mere servant of you. I'm not God. I'm not to be worshipped. Stop doing that. We also see humans doing this to humans, like Paul, for example. They're thinking that he was a god or he was you know, uh, some deity, and he said, get yourself up. That's inappropriate. Don't do that. We see that this is not taking place. Worship and the... the acts that are taking place are not, Joshua's not being told uh, to stop doing what he's doing, uh, as well as many other occasions. So we see from this that this is what most theologians refer to, and I'm going to bring out kind of just a, a key term, just so if you ever see this, you might know what it means, they call them a theophany. Theophany is a word that has been used by different biblical scholars, theologians, to describe these instances in the Bible where you have what is seen as a physical manifestation of God in human form. This could be through a dream, this could be through a vision, or it could be in real time, such as we see here in the book of Joshua. The word theophany comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and epiphany, which basically means appearance in the English. It's a Greek word that comes to us in the English as appearance. So it is a God appearance. And we see many of these. We see Genesis 16, 7 through 14, the angel Lord appearing to Hagar, being introduced as the angel of the Lord, the Moloch of God, the messenger. But as the story unfolds, this angel is talking about itself in first person terms as being God. We see the same thing in Genesis, the 22nd chapter, 11 through 15, Numbers 22, 23 through 35. Uh, with Balaam's donkey. We also see it in Judges, the second chapter, the angel of the Lord, then revealing about how he was the one that re, you know, brought Israel out of the wilderness. Those are just a few examples that we see. And so right here, let's think about the story. Right here we have Joshua looking up, and here's this man, sword drawn, ready for battle, and introduces himself as the commander of the Lord's army. There's three principles I want us to derive from this. The first one is, we need to remember that God is our commander. He is not our soldier. God is our commander. He is not our soldier. It's interesting how the Hebrew text here presents the answer to Joshua's first question. Joshua asks, are you with us? Or are you with the enemy? The commander replied, neither. The King James translates this, the word no, no. The actual full phrase is neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Strange, isn't it? 
This commander saying, I'm neutral. Not for you or them either. I'm for someone else. What is going on here? What is the idea that's being presented or translated? What concept are we to take from this? The idea here is that the commander was not here just to participate, but rather to take over. This was not Joshua's battle. This was not Joshua beckoning or trying to marshal the support of God in battle, but that this, as the supreme battle, or as the supreme commander, all along was God's battle themselves. This was God's battle, not Joshua's battle. The response of Joshua demonstrates this when Joshua understands him when he asks the question, what do you want me to do, your servant? At the response of this, neither, but I am the commander of the Lord's army, and I am here, Joshua immediately responds with realizing this, I am your servant. What do you want me to do? Think about that. Think about that sometimes. Do we sometimes want to marshal God into our battles and instead have the mindset of they are God's battles in the beginning, in the first place? It's a tough concept to think about. It really is. Because what the scriptures tend to continually seek and continually teach us is that we are not to try to pit God on our side, but rather we are to be on God's side. We are with God. We are trying to line ourselves with God, not vice versa. God, I have this intention, I have this goal, I have this battle. Will you help ally yourself, ally yourself with me in this? Instead, it should be the other way around. God, what are your plans for me? What is your goal for me? And how can I be a submissive and obedient servant to you in those plans? That is the humility that we see Joshua have right here. Realizing that, of course, we know that this is probably for Joshua's encouragement. And naturally, we do think like this. We have something going on in our life. It's natural for us as humans to think, man, how am I going to do this? How am I, I mean, we start, I mean, which brings me to my second principle. God is personally present and has a powerful provision. That's my second principle. In this case, Joshua's encounter, as I mentioned, was for encouragement. And God does do those things. God doesn't just sit around and have no knowledge that we have weaknesses that we think as humans. He wants us to overcome that. He wants us to think more and more like him. He wants us to come more and more of the stature of Jesus. But Christ, right there at God's right hand, understands what it's like to be human, understands those inclinations to think in a carnal way. And I, when I say carnal, I'm not saying we're evil or, or anything like that. I'm saying that it's just natural. We have that natural inclination to do those things. Well, what's gonna, you know, how am I going to get through this? And we start calculating in our mind. We start calculating like, Okay, if I do this, maybe I can do this. Maybe, maybe this could happen. And we start trying to put it all together. Think about David. Think about David's life. David and Goliath. We see one David. He's going up against this huge giant. Everyone's probably laughing at him. He's this child, literally, is what he looks like. And he goes and he defeats this giant. But whenever he's actual king of Israel, at one point, he starts calculating his army. He ta starts taking a census. Because he wants to start calculating, oh, I'd be able to do this, why would I be able to do this? It's basically we see this slow progression or digression in that instance 
and moving away from fully trusting God and looking at God as being the one that is always present with him and always going to provide the victory because the victory is not ours. The victory is God's and belongs to God's. Let's just think about another little illustration. Let's go to 2 Kings, the 8th chapter, or 6th chapter, verse 8. This story gives me goosebumps, honestly. Thinking about this actually happening and thinking about the, the ramifications it has for me and you in our life, even though we don't face physical battles. The story in 2 Kings 6 is Elisha, the prophet Elisha. He's at this place called Dothan, and he has this servant in Dothan, and while he's there, the army of Ben-Hadad had surrounded the city. And of course, his servant saw this. It was just absolutely mesmerized in fear. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do, Elisha? They have surrounded us. I love the response from Elijah in this story. In verse 8 of 2 Kings 6, and when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? We're never going to survive this. What have we got ourselves into? So he answered, Elisha, that is, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's not the opposition. That's the angelic army that God allowed his servant to see. That God was there with them. He's actively and present with them. You know, there's an interesting little story I'm thinking about Joshua and where he came from. Joshua was just young and following after Moses and obviously became the chosen one to take the baton after Moses went up on the mountain and died. But right when they were in Israel, or rather Egypt, rather, we know that there's this interesting little story in Exodus the 13th chapter, or 14th chapter, in verse 13. I always wonder, does Joshua remember those words? Does Joshua remember those words? Because what we have is, is that Israel is being delivered out of Egypt. They're being delivered out of Egypt, and they're on their way, and right behind them, getting ready to be blocked in by the Red Sea, and we know what happens after that, the, the sea parts. They look back, and they see Pharaoh's army chasing after them. And Moses says this, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. If Joshua remembers that, he probably also remembers the words of God that comes right after that. Because as God is in that situation talking to him, he says, don't just stand. Keep going. There's a sea there. I'm God. Remember what happened in Egypt? Keep walking. In this story, we have to realize that God is present in our lives. We have been given a little glimpse. I have no idea how it works in the spiritual realm. None of us do. But what we do know is this, is that God is actively present all around us. His forces are all over the place. We can't see it, but they're there. And we have to live our life in a way that 
we know and understand that they are there. We know very little about the spiritual realm. We know enough just to be a little bit dangerous, just enough to make charts and all kinds of things. But what we do know is that it exists. And there are forces. There's forces of good and forces of evil. There's forces of righteousness and of, of God Almighty, the eternal one, and forces of evil. I'm reminded of Daniel, the 10th chapter, where the angel comes to Daniel and says, you know, ever since you started praying and started fasting, I've been trying to get to you. But the prince of Persia has fought me, has kept me from coming to you until the, the archangel came and helped me. Now, what do we take from that? I'm not sure. Except that we know that there are forces around us. There are things taking place. There is spiritual forces of good and evil. We know that is our battle. It's not flesh and blood. But it's about the spiritual principalities of this world, of this realm that God has created. My last principle for us is that we must approach God in holiness. Looking at the setting right there, right before the conquest of, of Joshua and the Israelites, what took place? They were circumcised and they kept the Passover. Both of which are symbols of sanctification. Being set apart. Understanding that you worship a holy God. And that holy God requires you to do the necessary sanctification in order to come in His presence. In order to approach Him. We must remember who we are, who God is, and as response to this... As Joshua realized, take the sandals off our feet as we approach the holy ground of the commander of the Lord's army. Approaching God with a pure heart and a clear conscience and in obedience to Him and Him alone. So in closing, looking at this, as I mentioned, it was more of a devotional today. Just looking, there's so much more that we could look at. There's so many different other principles that we could apply to this. We could get into... Uh, the New Testament and seeing the different things that we can learn from the New Testament and under, that gives us more understanding about this situation. But my conclusion today is real simple. God is our commander. He's not our soldier. God is our protector and always is going to provide and give us the provision we need. He's not just a commander, but he's a powerful commander, a powerful protector, a powerful provider in the battle belongs to God. He is active, and he's involved. And no matter the circumstance, the battle belongs to the commander of the Lord's army.